you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. We've been working our way through Philippians for a few months now. We're going to be beginning chapter 3 today. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be spending the next two weeks in these verses, verses 1 through 11. So I'll be preaching on this passage today and next Sunday. And so if there's some verses in here that I don't quite touch on completely, um, I'm probably going to touch on it next week. There's a lot here, and so um, I think it's worthy of a couple sermons. Philippians chapter 3. We live in a culture that's obsessed with the superficial. Almost everything in our culture celebrates and worships the external and how things appear on the outside rather than the meaning of things internally. Some examples. Think about all the buzz we see on social media that goes on daily. How much of what people put online is just an attempt to appear a certain way? or portray a certain kind of image, or prove to the world that I have a certain kind of life, or I am a certain kind of person. The truth about my life doesn't really matter as long as I appear a certain way. What about commercials? (laughs) My kids know, my wife knows, I cannot stand commercials. With a few exceptions, they appeal almost always to the most superficial and shallow aspects of human nature personal image, body appearance, not to mention just the ridiculous promises that they either explicitly state or insinuate. There's always some beautiful person, right, or group of people. They're always having the time of their life, doing something that no one has ever done and will never do, but it's always so unique and cool, right? They're young, like a teenage couple. They're holding hands on a boardwalk, on a beach, next to a a seaside carnival, right? Eating cotton candy, and they're spinning around on roller skates, and then they're sitting on the beach watching the sunset. Then they get in a sports car, and they're driving through town, you know, and they stop at this really retro, old, like, gas station in the middle of nowhere because that's, like, really a cool thing to do. And then they go in, and they, they come out, and they're just laughing because they're so in love and everything. And then they hold up a Coke, right? They're sharing a Coke. That's what Coke's all about, right? Because we all have those experiences when we're drinking Coke, right? Drink Coke. This is what your life can look like. Nobody lives that life, right? Uh, weddings. Oh, my gosh, Weddings. Um, This is not at all saying anything about any wedding I've ever attended of anyone here at Redeemer. Don't hear that. And I really mean that. The weddings I've been to for people at Redeemer, excellent. But how are weddings often portrayed in culture? What are the things that are emphasized and celebrated? Appearance, right? It's a show. It's a celebration of the love of the couple, right? Weddings, so much focus on external, superficial, beauty, fashion. These are things that are just thrown at us constantly. It's easy to poke fun at all the superficial things around us, but what about us? What about ourselves? Just think about your own personal holiness. How many of us live terrified because of our sin being exposed to others? As long as things appear to be fine on the outside, we feel like we are successful Christians. We judge the success of our Christian walk on how we are perceived by others, usually other Christians. Our tendency to focus so much on things that are external are an attempt to prove to ourselves and to others that we are inherently good enough. As long as I can prove that I'm good enough, That's all that matters. This is the kind of spirit behind our focus on the external. And if we're honest, we often try to do the same thing with God. We all know we can't fool God. We would say that. But there are times when we really convince ourselves we can. As long as we can fill our lives with external qualifications or get to a particular position in life, then surely that means we've earned a measure of God's favor, right? Surely that means I'm somebody in the kingdom of God. If I'm an elder of a church, that counts for something, right? 
I've been on mission trips and discipled people. That counts for something, right? It means I'm all right. It's easy for us to start viewing our walk with God in these terms because we are all, by nature, legalists. We want to judge our lives and the lives of others on performance. It makes things much easier. But today in Philippians 3, Paul, he makes a drastic shift from what he's been talking about. He makes a shift to warning the Philippians about false teachers. He has some pretty strong words for people who believe they can somehow earn their way into a relationship with God. Now, why does Paul transition from giving examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus to then talking about false teachers? Remember, last week, Travis preached on Epaphroditus and his sacrifice. And then uh, before that, he gave, Paul gave the, the example of Timothy, right? And so we have this context of, of if we go back to Philippians 2.4, Paul writes, Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he gives the example of Christ, right? How did Christ do this? He left heaven, took on human flesh, gave himself, right? He emptied himself, becoming the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then he gives the example of Timothy. And then he gives the example of Epaphroditus. He's giving us these wonderful examples of people who look not to their own interests, but to the interests of others. Humble servants live a life of humble service to others from a heart of love for God. But false teachers, he's going to make this contrast, false teachers are self-glorifying And they think they possess a righteousness in and of themselves. That's what he's contrasting. Humble service, Jesus, Timothy, Epaphroditus. Um, False teachers, legalists, who believe they have a, a, a righteousness in and of themselves. Here's my main point this morning. The righteousness of Christ is our only hope for eternal life. Simple. The righteousness of Christ is our only hope for eternal life. Let's read the passage starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's two points to this sermon. They're very clear. Number one, self-righteousness leads to death. Self-righteousness leads to death. And number two, Christ's righteousness leads to eternal life. Christ's righteousness leads to eternal life. Let's look at the first one. Self-righteousness leads to death. Paul's talking about Judaizers in this passage, these false teachers. These were Jews. Some of them were actually, they actually believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they insisted that Christians, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow Christ, you had to also follow all of the Old Testament ceremonial law. In other words, to be a Christian, really a good one, one had to also become a Jew. They were adding something to the gospel. 
Paul thinks this is absurd. Here he calls them dogs. This was a huge insult for any Jew. Dogs were considered filthy and unclean. They're not worshipped like they are in our day. They, they were hated, despised by the Jewish. Dogs are filthy creatures when you think about it. I mean, really. I mean, if you've ever had a dog, you know. I mean, they're cute, they're fun, they're, they're, they're great. Man's best friend and everything, but they are filthy animals. Um, under the Old Testament law, they were not, Jews are not permitted to have contact with dogs or have them in their home. Paul calls them evildoers. You can't get much more confrontational than that. This teaching they are spreading is wicked. It's akin to the work of Satan. It leads people astray and ultimately to hell, as we're going to see. He says that they are those who mutilate the flesh. This is because a major part of this teaching was that in order to become a Christian, someone had to first be circumcised. For Paul, this was nothing but an unnecessary mutilation of the flesh. In fact, uh, there was no spiritual significance to circumcision at all in Paul's mind. To add anything, including circumcision, is to lose the gospel and the result is spiritual condemnation. So Paul has nothing but condemnation for such a teaching. This false teaching is something Paul condemns over and over in multiple letters in the New Testament. He addresses this especially in Romans and Galatians. He had nothing but the strongest words of condemnation for those who believed and taught this understanding, this false understanding of salvation. In Galatians... Paul says that anyone who teaches this false doctrine that you need to be circumcised to, to be a Christian is, deserves to be accursed and cut off, same word, cut off, circumcised, cut off from God. In fact, in Galatians, he says, do you really think that circumcision is going to save you? Then why don't you just go all the way and emasculate yourselves? That's, how, that's the kind of language Paul uses about this teaching. It is destructive. It is false. It needs to be rejected. Then in verse 3, he says, we are the circumcision. By that, he means we, the true believers, the church is the real circumcision. Those who are believers in Christ, who have been marked off by the Spirit of God and who worship Christ Jesus, these are the ones who are really circumcised because circumcision is not a matter of flesh and blood. It's a matter of the heart. We see this in Colossians. You were circumcised with a circumcision made with hands by putting off the body of flesh I'm sorry, without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In Romans 2, he says, No one is a Jew who is, one, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. He's saying the same thing here in Philippians. Those who truly belong to God are not those who have been marked by a mere cutting of the flesh, they are those who have been marked off by the Spirit of God. Then he, he really digs his heels in here. He becomes even more combative in the next verses, in verses 4 through 6. His point in these verses is to say that if there is any Jew, if any Jew out there thinks that he has reason to boast in his Jewishness, it's me, it's Paul. He uses himself as an example, not one of one who is righteous, but of one who considered himself righteous, but was actually deceiving himself. You see, no one exceeded Paul in his Jewishness. He even goes so far as to list out all the things that made him the best possible Jew. Now, what are those things? He lists them right here. Number one, circumcised on the eighth day. This was the common practice for Jews in that day. It was the primary mark of God's covenant people. It's what separated the Jews from every other nation around them. It was the most important distinguishing mark of it in the life of any male Israelite. He was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, he says. 
His Israelite lineage um, obviously was a huge priority for Paul, for any Jew in that day. The tribe of Benjamin was historically a very important tribe, although it was very small. Saul, the first king of Israel, was from the tribe of Benjamin. You might remember the story of Joseph when his brothers came to Egypt to get food. And right before Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he has them sit down at the table. And which brother gets the double portion, the most food? It's Benjamin. Do you you remember why Benjamin gets the most? It's because Benjamin was Joseph's only full brother. The other ten brothers had been born of Leah and Isaac's other concubines. I'm sorry, Jacob's other concubines. But Benjamin was the full brother. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. This means his Hebrew lineage extended back for multiple generations. There was no mingling of Gentiles in Paul's lineage, as far as we know. His lineage was pure. He was no muggle. Definitely not a dirty mudblood. It's for all you Harry Potter fans out there, right? There was no mingling of Gentile blood. Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a group of Jews who set themselves apart from the common Jews of the day. The word Pharisee literally means separated one. They were highly respected religious leaders. They were the ones the common people looked to for spiritual instruction and guidance. They were automatically held in high esteem simply because of their external religious position. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a zealous persecutor of the church. He was so committed to his Jewishness that he actually persecuted Christians. He approved of Stephen's stoning in Acts 7. And he encountered Christ on his way to Damascus. Why was he going to Damascus? To arrest Christians. How much more zealous could one be? Paul was more zealous in his Jewishness than most of us are in our Christian walk. And last, he says he was blameless under the law. He was committed to obeying every Old Testament regulation, so much so that he describes himself as blameless in it. Paul's point in all of this is clear. If anyone had reason to boast in his self-wrought, inherent righteousness, it was him. The Judaizers think they deserve God's favor. They don't hold a candle to Paul. Let's shift a little bit. How do we tend to value these same things? Does anyone here boast in their circumcision? Probably not, right? It's not really what we do anymore. Does anybody here boast in your lineage? Maybe. What do we boast in? What are our self-righteous external qualifications? I prayed the sinner's prayer at church camp when I was a kid, right? I did that. I walked an aisle during a revival service. I had an emotional experience where I cried a lot. I had a vision or dream of some kind. I'm in church every Sunday. I'm a pastor at my church. I teach classes. I lead community group. I help other people in their Christian walk. We have family worship every night at my house with my kids. I read my Bible every morning. I pray without ceasing. I vote Republican and support all the right candidates. I don't drink or smoke or chew or run with girls who do. What about our own personal holiness? This is perhaps the most seductive way our self-righteousness creeps in. We begin to look at all the really good things that we are doing, right? How we're growing in our love for the Lord and our holiness, and we really start to think that we kind of, God kind of owes us his kindness, right? His love, his grace, I mean, I've done so many good things. Or maybe we just compare ourselves to others. 
my sin isn't as bad as someone else's. I mean, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not Hitler, right? I'm not Hitler. This kind of looking to a whole lot of external things to make sure and assure ourselves that we belong to God can very easily become a different kind, well, the same kind of legalism that we see Paul describing here. Now, many of those things I listed are very good things. I hope we do most of those things. Family worship, going to church and reading our Bibles and praying without ceasing. I hope that you have prayed the sinner's prayer, right? If that's how you came to Christ, I'm not throwing that out. But what I'm saying is that those things are not where our righteousness lies. We're going to see where our righteousness lies. How do these things lead to death? If we start to put our confidence in these, remember, what's my point? Self-righteousness leads to death. To put our confidence in our own righteousness, in something that we have done, will lead to death. How does that happen? First, it's going to kill your joy. Okay? Nothing will bring you discouragement faster than trying to will yourself into righteousness. Have you ever tried to just make yourself stop sinning? Does it work? Do you find enough spiritual power in yourself to defeat your sin? You won't find it. I'm not saying you can't force yourself into new behaviors. People do that all the the time. The self-help books at Barnes & Noble abound. For every bad habit that you kill, though, by your willpower, you will not be able to kill the root of that habit in your heart. You can try to stop sinning externally all you want, but you are incapable of killing the sin, the root of that sin in your own heart. You will get discouraged when you try to portray yourself as righteous when you know you're not. We cannot atone for our own sin, and no matter how righteous uh, we try to be, the consequences and the reality of our sin will condemn our conscience all the time. You will not be able to will yourself to be righteous enough. But how else does this lead to death? Second, it leads to death because You live your life deceived by your own heart. If you really think you are righteous in yourself because of something you have done, you are being deceived. 1 John tells us that anyone who says he has no sin deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. But third, the result of trusting in our own righteousness will ultimately lead us to hell. This is the end result in trusting in our own self-righteousness. God, this is the key, God does not require mostly obedience. God does not require that you be more righteous than the person sitting next to you. God does not require that you do more good than bad in the world. No, God requires 100% perfection. Perfect obedience is the standard. No amount of effort or self-will will get you there. To seek righteousness in ourselves is a rejection of the righteousness of Christ. All of this seems like very bad news, doesn't it? We can do nothing to earn God's favor. There's no amount of righteous works we can perform to outweigh the rebellion in our hearts. There are no laws we can force ourselves to obey to bring about heart transformation. As the word says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own wicked ways. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve eternal punishment for our unrighteousness. But praise God, there is another way. Yes, we cannot will our own righteousness, 
But as we're about to see, there is a righteousness that exists apart from us and apart from the law. Let's read how Paul describes this righteousness in verses 7 through 9. Starting verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul explicitly states that he has renounced all his adherence to the Old Testament ceremonial law. It's not that he doesn't do those things anymore. It's that he does not count them as righteous. He does not count any of it as his own righteousness. He says any gain that he has received from his Jewishness is now counted as loss. And then, just in case he wasn't clear enough, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss, all of it. And then one more time, in as strong as language as he can say it, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, refuse, garbage, trash, Things to be thrown away. Now think for a moment what he's saying. It doesn't seem like a big deal to us because we're not Jews living 2,000 years ago. Put yourself in Paul's place. Circumcised on the eighth day. Garbage. An Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. Garbage. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Garbage. A Pharisee. Man, wouldn't it be great to be a Pharisee sometimes? The power, the influence, the way people look up to you, garbage. A zealous persecutor of the church, garbage. Blameless under the law, garbage. All of it. It's junk. It's worthless. It's something that I once considered so important. It was all of his identity, it was the center of Paul's religious life. It wasn't just part of what it meant to be a Jew. That was everything, everything to him until he came to know the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. Paul's point here is that Jesus is better. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss because Jesus is better. You see, Jesus plus anything is zero. But Jesus plus nothing is righteousness. Jesus plus anything is zero. But Jesus plus nothing is complete righteousness. Paul knows that the thing he needs the most is righteousness. The thing that you need and that I need the most is righteousness, right? What separates us from God? Sin. How do we bridge that gap? We've got to be righteous, right? We don't just need forgiveness. We need that, but we need a righteousness, we have to be righteous. And he knows that there's nothing he can do to get it. And if a circumcised Jewish Pharisee who was blameless under the law isn't righteous, then what hope? What hope does anybody have, right? But with Jesus, we can find righteousness. Verse 9 tells us this righteousness is from God. It's not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And then he breaks it down crystal clear, in case we didn't get it yet. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, 
if you're thinking, hopefully, kind of the way I think, <laughs> maybe that's not a good thing, but what I would say here is, well, wait a minute, Caleb. You just spent 20 minutes talking about how we can't do anything to gain the righteousness of God for ourselves, and now you're saying, oh, but there is one thing that you can have, one thing you can do, have faith, right? So which is it? Isn't faith, having faith, a work? And my answer is simply this, no, it's not. If you think faith belongs in the category of works and you don't understand what faith is, over and over in his letters, Paul distinguishes what it means to seek righteousness by works, which will only lead to death, and righteousness by faith. And what do we know about faith? Well, first, according to Ephesians 2, we know that faith is what? It's a gift of God, right? It's a gift. It doesn't come from you. You don't somehow have faith buried deep inside of you and you just have to self-realize it, right? It's just in there. You just have to dig down deep enough and find it. No, faith is a gift from God. There's nothing inherent in us that we can point to as a source of our faith. And second, what do we know by faith? Faith, by its very nature, is a ceasing from work. It's a looking away from ourselves, a casting of ourselves onto the mercy of God. There is nothing in faith that points back to me. Those who have faith in Christ, Paul says, have no room for boasting. But if it comes from you, if your faith is in here somewhere, then you would have room for boasting. But it doesn't. No one can gloat over another person by saying, I have faith and you don't. And no one can look to God and say, I have faith, so now I deserve forgiveness and grace. That's not what faith is. Faith says, I'm done. I'm done looking in myself for any righteousness. I must have the righteousness of Christ. Faith says, without the perfect life of Jesus and his atoning death, I am lost and condemned. Faith says, I am at your mercy, O God. Do with me what you please. Faith says, I am not the God of my world anymore and my only hope for salvation is Jesus. Faith doesn't come from us. It's a gift and faith never points back to our own self-wrought goodness or qualifications. And faith never says, yeah, but I accepted the gift, Caleb. Don't you have to accept a gift when someone gives it to you? I mean, I know faith is a gift, but didn't I accept faith when Christ offered it to me? <laughs> I just want to ask, why, why do we try to find any reason to point back to ourselves, even in, in faith, right? Faith is a gift, there is nothing inherent in us that would cause us to all of a sudden wake up one day and love Christ. There's nothing. That's not a choice that we can make. It feels like a choice at times. But that only happens. Church, we have to understand this. That can only happen by the sovereign power of a good God it's a divine and supernatural light that he imparts to your soul. All of our external qualifications must be rejected in order to gain Christ. This rejection 
of all of our self-righteousness and a valuing of Jesus is the essence of our faith. This is the only requirement for the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus is better. Because Jesus plus anything is zero. And Jesus plus nothing is righteousness. Now, why is this good news for us? Some of it might be difficult to hear, maybe difficult to understand. But if you're here and you don't know true saving faith, then this message is especially for you. You see, there's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous before God. But here's the good news. A man named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He was born of the Virgin Mary to set him apart from the sin-stained lineage of Adam. And here's why the life of Jesus is so amazing. He lived about 35 years in perfect, unbroken fellowship with his father. He never committed one sin. He lived in perfect, righteous obedience in every way that you and I have failed. He was so righteous that he was hated by the religious leader of his, of his day, and they arrested him. They beat him, and they crucified him on a cross. And when he died, he took the sin of his people upon himself. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to prove that he was God in the flesh, and he ascended into heaven. And now, today, this very day, anyone who turns from sin and all of our self-wrought righteousness, and anyone who casts themselves at his mercy, that's what faith is, can find forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And here's the thing. That perfect, righteous life that Jesus lived will be counted as your life. His life will become yours. That's huge, right? You will be clothed with what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of someone else, the righteousness of another. It's outside of you. You will be counted righteous in Christ. This is, this is the beauty of the gospel. What a gift you can receive today to cease from working and striving and proving and to rest in the finished work of Jesus. This is what we celebrate every Sunday when we're here. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But what about those who are Christians? Why is this truth, why is this uh, teaching important for us? How we view Christ's imputed righteousness, that's a big word. That's what I'm talking about, though, is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. You're clothed in his righteousness. How we view that has a direct effect on how we view our identity in Christ. Do you think you are accepted before God because of your own performance, something you have done? Then you will continue to try to live up to that impossible standard by your own willpower. If you think that God's grace to you is based on something you do or don't do, then your life will be full of discouragement and fear and ultimately despair. But if there was nothing you did to earn God's favor, then there's nothing you can do to unearn it, right? It works both ways. If you did not do, do anything to earn God's favor, then there's nothing you can do to unearn it. 
That's what's amazing about the gospel of God's grace. It's unending. His mercies are new every day. He is an eternal fountain of unending grace that we can return to again and again. God's love for us is not based on how good of a Christian we are. We have been clothed in his righteousness so we can stop striving to earn his favor. But why else is it important for Christians? This actually gives us the strength to be who we are. You are a new creation. If Christ is in you, you are a son or daughter of God. You are righteous. God has freed you from the bondage of sin and rescued you from hell. And now you are free to love and serve and give of yourself freely because you are not trying to earn God's favor. Do you see how different that is? Do you see how that's completely different from the other way? If we're trying to do a whole bunch of good things and to get God to like us versus I want to do a whole bunch of good things because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ and I want, to, I want to be more like who I am in Jesus. Do you see how, how, how we view our righteous standing before God changes our view of good works our ability to love other people and, and live self-sacrificially. The other way is bondage, trying to live up to an impossible righteous standard on our own. Can't do it. Lay it down. Jesus has clothed you with his righteousness. Now go. Become like this righteousness. You, this is who you are. Now live in accordance with who you really are. Do you see how that's different? This is huge for us, church, as we think about what it means to walk daily with the Lord and grow in Christian maturity. This is something I've noticed in myself and others in our church, even recently. There is this tendency we all have, and I am guilty of this, to think that personal spiritual growth means sinning less, feeling tempted less, feeling discouraged less, <coughs> feeling overwhelmed less, and then feeling mostly stronger and better all the time, right? That growing in sanctification means that we struggle uh, less and we reach greater and greater heights of self-sufficiency, it's almost like we view spiritual growth as becoming less dependent upon Christ and the work of his spirit and more dependent on our own self-wrought righteousness because that is how maturity looks in almost every other area of our lives, right? When you get a new job, you maybe have to have somebody with you, right? Training you, standing next to you, making sure you're doing the right thing and slowly they kind of work themselves away from you and until you're eventually, I don't need that guy anymore, right? I got this. Good. Make it your own. That's the way life works almost all the time in every area. That's a good thing. We need that, right? We don't want our kids just tagging along with us when they're 30 years old um, like they do when they're three, right? We want them to become self-sufficient, But the Christian life, the Christian walk, says we never move beyond the gospel. Growing in Christian maturity does not mean we wean ourselves off of the grace of God into some kind of self-righteousness. It means we continue to dive deeper into the depths of God's grace and we find more and more of it because as we mature, we find more and more need for that grace. We've got to get this, church. Let's stop thinking that we are failing in our Christian walk when we need more of God and his grace. That's not a mark of a failing Christian 
The mark of a successful Christian isn't measured in how many verses you have memorized or how many days you have gone without missing your Bible reading plan or whatever. The mark of a mature Christian is one who grows in humility, who is pushed lower and lower because he sees, she sees her need over and over for more grace, more grace. Yes, we want to kill sin before it kills us, but when we kill sin, we're just going to see more of it and oh, how we're driven to the cross again and again and again. And in that, we find hope and restoration and a, and a daily reminder of who Christ is for us. He is my righteousness anyway, right? I look to him. There's never gonna be a time where I'm gonna feel, okay, now I've reached a point where I don't need Jesus as much. No. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now continue to strive to become who you already are. I want to finish with one last point of application. Why is this important for evangelism? Right? This is really great. I think this is the essence of the gospel that we're talking about. This is all over scripture. It's great for us. Man, I... This empowers me. This, this fills me with hope and, and, and security in my walk with Christ. But what does it have to do with sharing the gospel with our neighbors? Well, there's a couple ways I think this is very helpful. First, we can stop trying to get unbelievers to cease from sinning. We don't have the power to do that, and neither do they, right? Right? And besides, even if we could get all of the unbelievers to, to start acting like good little Christians, they would still perish for all eternity, right? We should not be surprised by anyone's sin. Just getting people to appear externally righteous is not the goal of our evangelism. So that coworker who cusses all the time, right? You could probably say, hey, hey man, you know, it doesn't... I don't appreciate that or something like that, but getting them to stop cussing isn't going to make them a believer, right? They're going to act like who they are, just like any of us do. But second, we can entrust their souls to the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no one out of reach of the sovereign, saving hand of God. This is our hope in evangelism, church. This, this teaching, this passage, right? The righteousness of Christ, the sovereign work of God, calling people out of darkness into his light, clothing them with the righteousness of Christ, that is our hope in evangelism. If our hope in evangelism is getting them to just be righteous on their own, who can do that? What are you going to do to convince somebody to just be righteous? The hope that we have in our evangelism is the sovereign, saving hand of God who changes hearts. We can share Christ without fear, knowing that God will do his work in the hearts of his people to bring about repentance and saving faith. All we are called to do is be faithful sowers. Sow the word. Pray for the harvest. The gospel, this gospel, should remove us from the equation. We always are called to point people to Jesus and his righteousness. How many times have you talked with people who get hung up on the unrighteousness of Christians, right? Or the institutional failings of the church? They probably have a point. Many Christians make a public spectacle of themselves by falling into grievous sin, and the church is full of imperfect people. But we never proclaim the church to people, right? 
We never proclaim the righteousness of Christians or ourselves to people. No, we point them to the righteousness of Christ. They know they stand condemned before a holy God. So let's give them the only true remedy, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Church, our only hope in life is that we would be counted righteous in Christ. This is the only hope we have to offer a lost and dying world. This week, my prayer is that we would be faithful ambassadors for Christ. There are people in your life right now who are striving and working and living under daily condemnation because they know they have no righteousness. We have the remedy. We have the message of hope they need to hear. They can stop striving. We can stop striving. They can lay their burdens down and cast their cares on Christ. We can lay our burdens down and cast our cares on Christ because he cares for us. And when they do, they will be clothed with his blood-bought righteousness because the righteousness of Christ is their only hope for eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you that you have provided a way of salvation apart from the law, apart from any uh, external act we can do. We thank you, Father, that, that even the faith that we have that saves us is a gift from you. Humble us this morning, Father. Show us the truth and beauty of Christ, what he has done for us. Help us, Father, to see him today, to worship him in spirit and truth. And, Father, give us the boldness to open our mouths this week and to proclaim this gospel to a lost and dying world. Father, there are people all over this community who are trying and trying and trying to make themselves righteous when the work is done for them. But, Father, they don't know. So, God, make us faithful proclaimers this week of your gospel. May the righteousness of Christ motivate us to action. We pray this in his name. Amen.